you weren't doing business if you weren't wearing a suit. Really? Until the snowboarders came in with fuck baggy pants and hookers in the boots and <laughs> changed the whole vibe of the show. And after that, nobody wore suits anymore. So. <laughs> Welcome to All Aspects, a podcast where we explore, discuss, and celebrate adventure culture and outdoor lifestyle. It is our mission to educate, inform, and entertain our fellow adventurers about the inherent risks that surround us every time we go outside to play, and to provide you with the knowledge and tools to help you do the things you love the most in the safest way possible. All Aspects is brought to you by Aspect Abbey. Aspect Abbey is on a mission to save lives by making avalanche safety simple. It is the only app that tells you where the high and low risk zones are for today's avalanche danger. With a suite of built-in tools like forecast verification, slope meter, and gear checklist, Aspect Abbey is the new safety standard for avalanche risk management. Remember, there are dozens of apps that get you into the backcountry, but there's only one that's designed to bring you home. And that's Aspect Abbey. Go to aspectabbey.com to learn more or download the app to start your 30 day free trial. Thank you, Aspect Abbey, for making this show possible. And thank you for listening. All right, let's get to the show. All right, I'm sitting down here with Mike Hatchup. He's a former ski movie legend and star and AMGA certified ski guide, creator of the K2 Telmark line, and current snow brand director at Black Diamond. Mike? Welcome. Thank you. And we've also got a, a guest who's off camera here, his partner in crime, Angela Hawes, <laughs> Madam President from the AMGA, who's just wrapped up her term. She'll be on next week's podcast. That's right. But it'll be funny because we've got a heckler in the audience here. I was going to say, she's just yeah. here to heckle tonight. <laughs> Five-star heckler. <laughs> uh, so, Mike, you've had a life filled with adventure for decades. What, what does the term adventure mean to you? How do you think about adventure? We always say it's not an adventure until something goes wrong. Oh, tell but me more. I, about I think, that. I think to me, adventure is. It's it's got an element of unknown. You don't know what you're gonna find. Yeah. Um, kind of like this podcast. Like, what am it, I getting exactly? Into? I've had a couple I, glasses of sure wine and dinner. <laughs> I got lulled into a sense of complacency, and then Banks sprung this on me. Okay. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, to me, it's I think I think that's the the key to it for me is that there's a there's a element of the unknown. You don't know yeah. what you're gonna find. You don't. That's know. where it gets interesting, right? Yeah, that's that's what makes it that's what makes it interesting and captivating is yeah. Yeah. how uh, what you're gonna find and how you deal with it. And yeah. Is it implicit? That there's an element of risk involved with adventure. Well, I think the fact that there's unknown itself means there's an element of risk because you don't know um but yeah i think to me there's yeah there's always a, a, an element of risk okay and how has your thinking of risk evolved over the years because i mean how many decades are we talking about high risk activities in the mountains well i'm more risk averse now than i was okay um, and why is that and I'm more aware of risk than I was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can relate to that. Blissfully unaware for a long time. Completely oblivious at times. Yeah. Um, probably one of the best examples of that was surfing oh. in Hawaii. Oh. And I'm not a surfer. Okay. And so I'm out there. Don't know and, what we and, don't know. And I, yeah, I'm out there in the... And it's it's the beginner beach on the North Shore. It's yeah. uh, it's Haleiwa, and 
and I was just surfing that normally there's a little break and I was surfing that and then one day it was bigger and further out all the real surfers were and I'm in the beach uh -huh. break and mm -hmm. and I got tumbled you know and board got ripped the leash got ripped off my leg and the board went all the way in to shore so I go okay so I'm swimming in yeah. and there's a big rock jetty that protects a little marina behind there and I finally get to shore and I'm I'm not exhausted but I've already pretty you know, tired yeah I'm not a swimmer either yeah. right so um, and my board's nowhere to be found and then I see my board it's going along the rock jetty and I'm going ah oh. that's expensive I better get so it so I scramble up in the rock jetty wait for the, the set to come through scramble up on the rock jetty and I'm cruising down the the, the, the jetty and me my, my board is going further and then also further out to sea and finally I get caught up to it and I'm like it's always out there now, and I'm thinking, how much is my deposit on this thing? <laughs> right. I go, and I think I can get it. So I, I dive in, I swim out, get the board, I paddle in, and I'm cooked by the time I get in there. And right when I get in, the lifeguards are getting there. It's early in the morning, putting signs in the stand, caution, dangerous riptide. So I'm, and so and this gave me a lot of empathy, too, because... The people that you see leaving the resort, ducking the ropes, yeah. skiing in high hazard and have no, no clue. idea. Yeah. They, so I, I'm a little more empathetic with them yeah. instead of going, you yeah. idiots, because yeah. that was me. Yeah. And sometimes it takes being out of your element, your area of expertise to, yeah. to have some empathy. Your area of expertise deals with frozen water. Yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. yeah so. Not liquid. Yeah. So... What advice would you give your your younger self about adventure and risk? Oh boy! <laughs> um, Take your time. My younger self. Um, I don't know. I think it's it's take some time to learn more about it, about where you are and what uh -huh. you're doing. I mean, because that was. That was me and Hawaii just going out. Let's go surfing. How know? hard could it be? Yeah, and and wow, that and because it doesn't look dangerous, right? right? You can't see a riptide. Just yeah. like a foot of fresh powder doesn't look dangerous at all. Unlike Over, you spent a long, I know it's no week later. You spent yeah. a lot of time in Chamonix, yeah. and Chamonix, you got big tumbling glaciers and seracs and. It's a long list of things that could smoke you. And it yet. all looks scary. Yeah. It's intimidating. Mm. Whereas a, a field of 20 inches of new powder on a 30-degree slope fun. doesn't look dangerous at all. It looks inviting. Yeah. So I, I think that's, you know, and I guess what, when you talk about your younger me, I've got, I've got kids, and that's, mm. that's what I give them is, is don't, don't assume you know, or it's safe. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Did you have mentors along the way who could kind of rein you back in and say, hey, I think that was over the line today? Because it sounded like when we're, when you were surfing, and I've been in that same ex exact experience, like, oh, I'll learn yeah. how to surf. How hard could it be? And then right. be like, oh, my God, I almost yeah. drowned out there. Yeah. Did you have mentors along the way that, that gave you guidance? Um, yeah, but not till, not till later. I mean, when I when we shot Blizzard of Oz in Chamonix, I was mm -hmm. completely clueless. Yeah. I had never been outside the resort boundary at all. I was a ah. I was a resort mogul skier, so 
when I got to Chamonix, I mean, I saw all this raw, you know, fierceness out there and, uh, and I was drawn to the terrain, but knew I had no business being out there. And it wasn't really until later, I, I, I really had two mentors in the mountain and one was John Faulkner, mm-hmm. who's, who's an IFMGA guide, Australian living in Verbier. Yep. And he introduced me to rock climbing and my first alpine climb and my first ski mountaineering trip. And then after that, it was a, a Swiss guide that I worked for, Martin Falcon, yep. who owns a guide service in Seattle area. Um, and, and he really... So those two were, were my main mentors, yeah. for sure. All right. All right. Um, we had talked about this before, but uh, when I was a kid growing up in Vermont, you know, it was an annual rite of passage to go to Burlington, the big city, to the Flynn Theater, this big old opera house, and watch a ski movie. And when I saw Blizzard of Oz... I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but that's what I'm going to do with my life. And, and what did I say to you? He said, Jeff, don't blame me for your bad life decisions. <laughs> <laughs> so 15 years of living in Chamonix and guiding, I was like, oh yeah, there, there was, it was an incredible amount of adventure and so fulfilling, but also incredibly risky and a lot of close calls. And some of those were just the nature of being in the mountains. You're like, that's just an objective hazard, that rock fall or, you know, what have you. That's just part of the game. And then other times were mistakes that I made that I didn't realize. Right. Because when I was young and I had just gotten my, my guide's badge and I thought I knew it all. And one of my mentors going through the AMGA said, hey, this isn't the finish line when you get your guide's badge. It's just the start of the learning. Right. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? And only in hindsight... When I'd have close scrapes, did I was like, oh, these are the outlier conditions that I hadn't been exposed to before. But now that I'm doing 300 days a year for fun and for work, I'm seeing all the weird shit that can go wrong. And whoa, that was really close and a really hard lesson. Yeah. It was kind of wild to like interview here and kind of bring it full circle. It's kind of nuts. Well, and that was me too. And it was Chamonix that. That, that brought me down this path of becoming a guide and being more educated because I, I was, again, I was drawn to the terrain and I had yeah. knew I had no business being there. So that's when I started down the, the guide path education. When I started, there was no, there was no ski guide program mm. in the U.S. Mm. When um, did you start so, the so I started, program? I guided for RMI and Rainier. Oh, yeah. Because that was, that was a great education and awesome terrain and yeah i mean amazing you, you don't find glaciers. that terrain mo- anywhere else in the lower, lower 48. 48 yeah yeah i mean yeah. there's 20 there it's are 26 glaciers on rainier on so one you, mountain you That's learn a wild. lot um but i also got tired of walking down a perfectly good ski hill <laughs> and uh and, and i've yet <laughs> to walk down that mountain i only ski it it's good a great ski hill it is a great ski hill yeah. so yeah it was it, it was and i was guiding there in 95 and 96 and the guide the ski guide program didn't start i got certified in 99 oh so you must have been one of the first ski i think i was number seven it was was the second year oh my gosh yeah so it was early on and that that was you know bela vadaz and yeah and jean paviard yeah who who was right here here. yeah yeah yeah. now he's back in switzerland so yeah i actually took my exam in switzerland in the burner overland oh wow yeah it was cool Big glaciers. Oh yeah, it big was, peaks. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, oh, that's pretty wild. And so when you were saying 
you were inspired by the the terrain and I think maybe the the beauty of the mountains in Chamonix was that kind of like the motivation to be like hey I want to learn how to manage this terrain and manage my team through the terrain and that led you down the guides path yeah yeah and, and I didn't think I was I didn't initially plan on being a guide I just wanted to get more educated oh okay. so I went and took a crevasse rescue course from the mountaineers in Seattle and I took a a yeah. rock a rock course and the first aid course and and that those just kept building and then when the you know and then and I went and climbed Rainier um, with some friends and a former guide yeah for, for, at RMI and and that again piqued my interest further and so it just kept building and so there it was and I've always unlike you I've always been a part-time guide okay you know, I've always, that's, and I always joked. What was your other? Because when I was working on, at RMI, was, I always joked that the only reason I can afford to be a guide is because I have another job. Because. <laughs> to support your guiding they, habit? They didn't, they didn't pay real well back yeah. then. I think it's changed now. But, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I've always worked in the ski industry. I, yeah. You know, when I came back from Chamonix, from shooting Blizzard, I, I, uh, I finally graduated from school. Um, Un- unlike your brother, I beat your brother, but it was still seven years. <laughs> I, be, I was on the eight-year plan. They were calling yeah. me doctor by the time I got I out of there. Say <laughs> or grandpa. A, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think, you know, you, you don't want to let, uh, what is it, don't let life get in the way of having a good education. Well, I always say, yeah, I said the same thing throughout. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> don't, don't let school get in the way of your education. Yeah, exactly. And um, what was it about working in the ski industry? Because you, you've worn many, many hats. Like, can you give us just a brief overview of some of the projects you've been involved with? And, and what, yeah, I mean, I started... Around to, what was the... What drew you to that? Well, I mean... Yeah, I mean, that was the one thing I knew I wanted to do coming okay. out of college. I knew I wanted to ski. Yeah. Um, I couldn't find anybody to pay me to drink beer, so um, skiing was the only other alternative. <laughs> um, so I, I got a job at K two right after okay. right after I got back from shooting Blizzard yeah. that that summer. I, and I, is this I up graduated, Island? and this is when it was still on Vashon yeah. Island. Yeah. And so I was there for for three years, and then I ended up going to going to Fisher, or, or excuse me, uh, to Kessley Nordica. Oh yeah. And then came back um, to K2 and was there for a long time. And, and, and there I started. Uh, so I, I came back just as an athlete. I started as a product manager. I came back as an athlete, um, which was actually a good deal because I made, I made three quarters of my previous income when I was there every day. And I only owed them 30 days of work. So and then I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I had a. A goggle deal with Oakley and work, you know, boot deal with Technica. Okay. And so I eventually made the same amount of money, but didn't really have to work. So, uh-huh. um, what was the culture like? The the corporate culture like? Uh, well, it was different back then. Um, K two, even K two, which is pretty lax. Um, it was like khakis and button downs, except for Friday. It was casual Friday. You could wear denim on Friday. Okay. And, and now, of course, you can walk around in shorts and flip-flops there. It's, and, and, and the ski show was the same way. Okay. The ski show, 
It's the only time most of us wore a suit, but you wore a suit from, you know, for five days in a row. And the last day really? of the show, you, you didn't have to wear a tie, but... It, oh, that's, my gosh. It was old school, and if you weren't doing business, if you weren't wearing a suit. Really? Until the snowboarders came in with the baggy pants and hookers in the boots and <laughs> changed the whole vibe of the show. And after that, nobody wore suits anymore, so... <laughs> All right, all right. Yeah. And uh, what? Uh, and, and you are heavily involved with, with K2's Telmark program. And can you talk a little bit about that? And what was the appeal of Telmark for you? Well, so when we, when we shot Blizzard of Oz, we met John Faulkner and, and, and Mark Shapiro and Ace Cavalli, who were all living in Verbier. And, and they introduced me to Telmarking. They were going to do the out route. Okay. And yeah. they said, hey, we're going to do the out route. And I said, I want to go. And they Which, said, okay. just to interject, you start in Chamonix, and you ski through Verbier over the Swiss border, and then you continue yep. on to Zermatt, and it links up the two iconic mountains, Mont Blanc and the Matterhorn. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the most iconic. I mean, if you're going to, if you know one ski tour as a ski that's tour, the one. that's, that's yeah. the iconic one for yeah. sure. So... Anyways, I said, I want to go. And they said, well, we're doing it on telly, so okay, you better go practice. Right. So I went and groveled around the snow for a couple of days. and <laughs> Stuffed and, the tips, went over the handlebars yeah. and powder. Yeah. And it never stabilized, so we didn't end up going. But that, that got me interested in okay. it. Okay. And, right. and it, wasn't, um, it wasn't for a couple years later that uh, K2 bought Modsus, which is a Norwegian... Yep. Nordic brand. I used to race right? on them when I was doing yeah. skiers. Okay. Yeah. So great skis, yeah. And of course the Norwegians so we so we put Alpine molds in at Modsus so yeah. we could build skis for, for Europe and and uh, avoid some of the shipping. So um, and of course the Norwegians started building Telmark skis in those. Yeah. And they put them in the It's a religion. Yeah. They put them in the magazine, the the big Norwegian magazine test and won the test. Yeah. So they faxed K2. That's how long ago it was. Um, <laughs> instead said, of an email, it was yeah, a fax. Yeah. Yeah. yeah said, yeah. hey, we're building the best tele skis in the world, you guys should sell them. And everybody was sitting around K two and I was in Sun Valley at this point. I didn't I didn't I wasn't on the island anymore. And uh, so they're sitting around going, and nobody cared about Telly yeah. K2 yeah. at all. Yeah. Why would you? Yeah. yeah. And so somebody goes, hey, Patrick Telly's, doesn't he? Let's give it to him. <laughs> Not like an award is like, let's pawn it off and give it to Hatra. So, so I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. And so that's how it started. And the Norwegians were, were clever. The, the, the first skis were the, you know, they had the piste, which was a super narrow, like 63 underfoot. Yeah. Basically a rando race ski. <laughs> no, those are 65. <laughs> um, so, and then they had the, the piste off, which was a 65 underfoot. A real fatty. Yeah, which yeah. was normal alpine width at the time. Yeah. And uh, and so that's what started it, and then and then came the the peace stinks, yeah. and then and then the the cool thing about it was we didn't it was tiny right so you could take chances it did, nobody cared, oh. so then we did the totally peace and it was the graphic I chose was um, it was a, a graphic that was 
discarded from the Alpine line that was kind of too radical. It was muscle car flames. And I'm yeah, like, I remember that distinctly. That's yeah. cool. We're yeah. going to do that. So we kind of, you know, I, I didn't, I wasn't a traditional telemarker. My first boots were leather, but yeah. as soon as plastic came out, I was an Alpine skier. I'm going, plastic's better. So I go, jumped yeah. on that. Yeah. And, and from that point on, I said, we're not making boots. We're not making skis for leather boots. We're making skis for plastic boots. And so mm. our skis got wider. We did the, the after the P-Stinks and then the Totally and then the World Peace and, and, and the skis got wider and um, we put big stacks under the bindings, which yep, nobody so was doing. Boot out. Yeah. Because yeah. that's, and if you're not a teleskier, you don't know what that means, but you would catch the edge of the duckbill and you'd go down like a sniper shot your legs out. From exactly. Under. And it was yeah, yeah. brutal. Well, yeah. The, so, so that, it helped with that. But also the other thing you were lacking was leverage and that yeah. stack gave you leverage. Yeah. And so we, we had the first shape skis, the first wide skis, the first rocker teleskis. Where did and, the influences from that come from? Well, it came from it came from the Alpine world because I was involved still in the Alpine side of it. Yeah, and and so I knew that shape skis worked better. Yeah, than straight skis. Yeah. And while all the old tele guys were stuck in the straight mode, I'm going, this is better. We're doing shape skis. Yeah. So and the rocker tip totally makes sense because with tele binding. Yeah, but that it, came quite a bit later. Yeah. Um. It was it was the shape skis first. And, and I knew there was nothing different about the Telmark turn that was going to negate shape skis from working. <laughs> and same with width. You know, so, yeah. so a lot of this stuff was proved on the Alpine mm-hmm. world, and K2 was on the, the cutting edge of that, yeah. on the front edge. And so I would just adopt it for Telmark right after that. So uh, we went from not being existing in the marketplace to number one in three years with a dominant market share. We were like 40-50% market share and our closest competitor was 20. So it was a, it was a, it was a what fun was your, What was your reaction to that? Reaction? I mean it was it was a super fun time because yeah. we were... I mean was, was that what you were expecting? To be that successful? No. No. But um, but but not long after I, I realized that these guys are all in yesterday's world okay and 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 it just happened that there were all these technological advances happening in the alpine world that i knew were going to work with for tele right right so i i you know so we just i didn't unlike now when we test skis we benchmark all the competitors at that point i didn't test anybody else's skis because i knew they were yesterday's papers yep yep yeah and then how did that experience inform what you're doing now at BD? Tell us a little bit about what you're doing at BD and how did your previous life experience in the ski industry inform how you approach it right now? Well, so the thing that really shifted my, 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 my view in, in product development then was I had, I had started going through the guide courses. Okay. So I had become, um, I was a, I was an AMGA ski guide. Yeah. Um, shortly after, yeah, it was a few years after I started the telly thing. So I had a lot of knowledge that that the average backcountry skier didn't have. Right. And so we put a lot of those things into place, like we put holes in the tips and tails of the skis, so rescue sled, so you could build a rescue yeah. sled, and yeah. we had a really cool. 
I had a, a, a great uh, a great designer at K2, a guy named Jason Neubauer, who was really clever. And so I'd give him the ideas and he'd figure out how to do it. So we had, and, and, and Martin I like Folk doing that too. I've got these great ideas. I'm not sure how to make it happen. You guys figure it out. You're smarter than me. And that's, and that's what my world is at Black Diamond too. I'm, I'm, you know, I, Black Diamond is super engineering, engineering heavy. We've got 60 engineers there. So, um, so I'm usually the dumbest. Quite the geek squad. Yeah. And I'm usually the dumbest guy in the room. And so uh, these guys, it's like, I understand the market really well. Okay. And, and, uh, cause I've spent, you know, over 30 years in the ski industry and over 20 years now guiding and, you know, part-time guide, not like you, but so that, that blend of experience helps a lot. And I just, I work with, with some brilliant designers that can, that come up with, you know, figure out how to make all these things work. So that's what Black Diamond's kind of a. I mean, it's a it's a special company, um, and uh, I used to loathe them when I was at K two because <laughs> we we come out with something at K two that was really cool that was more progressive than what Black Diamond was doing at the time, yeah. but Black Diamond had the reputation and the name in that backcountry oh, world, okay. and so I always knew that I always thought if I could put that damn BD logo on this, I'd sell. 10x, X of what mark, we yeah, do yeah, here. Yeah. So, so, so now and there, and which is cool. Do you feel like you have a knack for seeing things that other people don't, like envisioning products that other people can't see? Yes and no. I mean, again, a lot of the stuff at K2, I wasn't the visionary that came up with shape skis or fat skis or rocker, you know, but when I see it, I'm usually... Actually, that's not even true. I, I was going to say when I see it, I know it, but a lot of the times I, I didn't. I thought, ah, shape skis, I don't know. Okay, um, okay. And fat skis, you know, I remember being at, I, I wasn't a big fan of fat skis, and, 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 and most good skiers weren't. Everybody yeah, was saying, yeah, yeah. Every, 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 yeah. all the good skiers were like, I don't need fat skis. I can. I remember I can getting dinged by my that. ski examiner on my ski exam at Valdez and being like, "All oh, you guys have your fat skis. It's just a crotch. You need to learn how to ski." It sounds Not like Freddie. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> he was on like some seventy mil Stokely's. <laughs> yeah, weighed a ton. Well, yeah. and that was the mindset, and and everybody was saying fat skis, fat tourists. You know. Yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But yeah. the but yeah. the one skier who was really progressive, who really had amazing progressive vision was McConkie. Yeah. And I remember being down at Powder and we were talking about fat skis and, and uh, Casimero, the editor at the time, goes, yeah, but you don't get face shots. You know, you don't get down uh, in the snow and get face shots. <laughs> and McConkie's response was, if you're getting face shots, you're going too slow. Oh! <laughs> Burn. Which was true because you could go 50 miles an hour and yeah. powder and fat skis. And I don't yeah. care who you were as a skier, you weren't doing that on old skinny skis. All Aspects is brought to you by Aspect Abbey. Aspect Abbey is on a mission to save lives by making avalanche safety simple. It is the only app that has built-in dynamic slope angle shading to show you exactly which areas are likely to trigger that day, allowing you to spend more time enjoying your backcountry adventure every time you go out. With a suite of built-in tools like forecast verification, a three-axis slope meter tool, 
Tour Tracker, and more, Aspect Avi is the new safety standard for avalanche risk management. Remember, there are dozens of apps that get you into the backcountry, but there's only one that's designed to bring you home, and that's Aspect Avi. Go to aspectavi.com to learn more or download the app to start your 30-day free trial. Going back to adventure, you said there was a sense of the unknown. Do you get that also when you're rolling out like new products where like we don't really know how this is going to play out? We think we have an insight into what's lacking in the market and what we think the customer needs and we've designed it and created it. But is it a little bit stressful when you launch something new? Yeah, it is because you never know for sure and it might be better, but the, they just might not, might not see it. Yeah, the perception might. Yeah, might catch sometimes up to it, it, t- it took a while for all those things to catch on. Yeah. Um, so the product is only part of it, it's the storytelling. Yeah. And the marketing that goes, you know, that that tells that story in sales and all those things have to line up yeah. to have a successful product. So even if even if the product is spot on, it's not it's not assured success. Yeah. All right, that might be a good segue. So you're in town in Crested Butte with your partner in crime, Madam President, Angela Hawes, President Emeritus of the AMGA. Yeah. And you just ran us through a great training today. I learned a ton about electromagnetic interference. Yeah. And could you give us a little insight about the new BD project that you've got going now and how that fits in, not just flogging product, but also like, hey, this is a public safety issue that most of us are only vaguely aware of and that you're trying to solve this problem. Yeah, well, the the fact that, that you as a seasoned guide learned a lot today tells yeah. me that, that <laughs> Most of even the core community is not aware of the electromagnetic interference that exists okay. out there and how it affects different beacons and what causes that interference. And so we, this is really, a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a peeps, it's a peeps project and a peeps yeah. beacon. And, 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 and what's Black Diamond's relationship with peeps? Black Diamond and peeps are both sister companies. Okay. We're both owned by the same parent okay. company. Um, and, and Peeps has come out with really breakthrough technology for interference mm. because you're familiar with the course of the 20, 2050 rule you need 20 centimeters from, from your beacon and your, your phone or when I'm sending, yeah, when you're yeah. sending and, and 50 when you're searching yeah. and, 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 and most Americans struggle with what the heck is 50 centimeters. Well, yeah. true. So, yeah. <laughs> Um, What's that like? Twenty inches, right? About that. Yeah. So this is this is oh, a this is twenty centimeters. Oh, and so you can and double it <laughs> from your your wrist to your arm is is about fifty. Oh, okay. All right. Yeah. So that's right. the easiest way to think about yeah. it. Yeah. Thirty centimeters is a foot, right? Yeah. So I mean, you lived in Chelmsford, you know that. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm a little more uh, adept at switching. Yeah. 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 Um, but so and and we all carry way more pieces of technology that cause interference from you know cell phones to gopros to headlamps to garmin inreach to yeah. to a, a metal probe or a metal shovel or radio radio all these things cause a, a chalk a, a foil covered chocolate bar yeah that was kind of news to me i knew chocolate killed in america but not in this way not yeah. when i'm backcountry skiing yeah so so it's eye-opening even for the community the experienced guides and educators 
And, and so that's why Angela and I are on the road to just open people's eyes to this. And it's, it's, it's not, it's not a, 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 our new beacon is called pro IPS and it was introduced to in Europe this last year. Um, and, uh, it'll be introduced in the U S next fall. Um, and it's designed to help solve this problem. Yeah, you can put your you can put your phone right on top of it, and it recognizes that interference and and boosts the signal back out to where it should be. So that interference is not an issue anymore with this beacon, and and with with so many guides unaware um, of of the different things that can cause interference and how much it causes like chocolate bars, like. Yeah. My takeaway early on when we were exploring how the interference can totally mess it up was, oh my God, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know it was this bad. And like the chocolate bar was incredibly bad. Yeah. Or like the aluminum shovel blade over it. And, uh, you know, phone seems like low hanging fruit, but that just is going to keep me up at night because it's, as a mountain guide, I'm trying to control two totally chaotic things. I'm trying to worry about mitigating the avalanche risk, which to some degree is unknowable. We don't have x-ray vision in the snow. It's always a little different from each spot. And then I'm trying to control the people in my group. And both are batshit crazy. (laughs) And now I don't know what people have in their pockets. And when we do our beacon check, I'm like, hey, touch your electronics and touch your beacon so I can see the separation. But then once we start our tour, it's always changing. Yeah. And I don't have control over that. Right. And this is terrifying because what we saw was the range just gets crushed, whether you're sending and you've got interference or whether you're searching, you get interference. And as a mountain guide, I can't control that. Once we leave the trailhead, I don't know what people are doing with their electronics or their chocolate bar wrapper or their big belt buckle or whatever it is. Yeah. And I hate that feeling. Yeah. It's, it's scary. And then, and that's why I think this is, this beacon is, it, it's fully featured like a, a guide beacon, but it's also the safest beacon because if I've got a client that has that, I don't care where their phone is. I don't care where they put their foil covered chocolate bar or their GoPro or it doesn't matter. And that's, that's comforting as a guide yeah. to know that that's not going to be an issue. I don't have to, you know, I know, like you said, when you start the tour, you know where that stuff is, but... And then all bets are all bets. Yeah, as soon yeah. as you turn around and start yeah. walking, and they take a picture, and and then yeah. it goes right on top of their beacon. You don't and, know that. You know, even as a professional, I got to say, like when I was working at our local cat operation or Irwin Guides, um, you know, we would have so much gear. So you got your radio, you got your phone to document for photos and notes and navigation, navigation, and then you've got your pull wire and all this stuff, and then your beacon, and then maybe a GPS watch and one of the worst offenders. Yeah. You'd come back in after your route to log your shots and load it up on the computer for documentation. And invariably someone would come in and say, Oh my God, I had so much going on. I had my beacon down in my thigh pocket to keep it away from my electronics. But I unzipped the pocket that was supposed to be dedicated only for the beacon. And these are all senior guides. These are not rookies. And it would happen all the time because the cognitive load, I've just got so much on my mind, I absentmindedly unzipped the wrong pocket and I left it open. 
and I was skiing out there naked, basically, with you know a chance my beacon falls out, and I've got a keeper leash, but I do not want to trust that little plastic clip with my life if I right. get swept in an avalanche. Right. Yeah, and it really drove it home to me of like this is a really difficult problem to solve for the professionals. So how the hell does a normal person who ski tours once or twice a month going to deal with this? Absolutely. No, that's why this is this is one of those big breakthroughs in technology that that will change the game and and ultimately make it a lot safer Mm -hmm. and my experience with the beacon was i usually use a mammoth that's what i've used for a long time and the things i appreciate about that seem to be the same with the peeps in that it's an incredibly precise and accurate arrow Mm -hmm. so if i'm if the arrow is aiming at the victim, that window is only a few degrees, whereas some brands, it's really wide. It's like a 30-degree window. Are there any specs on that that they were what they were aiming for, the engineers? Well, it, yeah, it went from 15 to 7. So when you get down to that fine search, and, and that's when, I mean, you're just following the arrow on the flux line to start with, right? But when yeah. you get down inside 10 meters, that's that's when that that arrow is really critical. And the... And the, the, the the, the more accurate that arrow is in the fine search, the, the less time you spend on the grid search. Yep, yeah. And what I find so, when I'm teaching avalanche courses or even for clients or beginners, you know, that, that fine search where you do the grid takes up far and away the most amount of time. And we can eliminate that altogether. We're just like lining it up at 10 meters and you're pointing right at the victim. And then when you get down to four, again, it's right at the victim and your partner can start probing. And they're going to find it before I finish my lowest reading doing the, doing the, the fine search with the mm-hmm. bracketing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, it seemed like when I got in on the, with the peeps, at the very end, what happens to the arrows when you're within, like, is it two, two meters? meters? The, the arrows go away. And why is that? Why is that important? Well, that, because... At, at that point, you should be you should be in the grid search. Yeah, yeah. Because so, it drives me nuts when beacons still have an arrow that close because they're overwhelmed by the infinite number of flux lines and that arrow is no longer accurate. And I love that the peeps just prompts you to do, hey, do the, your grid yeah, there the instead the of grid. giving you an arrow that's not accurate at all. And then you have to block that out. It's just like one more thing that I don't have to think about so I right. can focus on my job. Yeah, I really like that. And the long range, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, the, the, as you know, the antenna flips out. And yeah. so by, by moving the antenna out away from the rest of the, the software, because oh. so, the software also causes interference. Okay. So if you can move that antenna away from the interference, that's one of the reasons we have longer range okay because I, I, I was like wow i've never seen a beacon where you flip out the antenna yeah i feel like it's saturday morning cartoons in vermont and my brother's holding the rabbit ear antennas so we can watch <laughs> and then it's going to be my turn okay but that kind of makes sense you get better yeah. reception yep okay and then uh what's the availability for this beacon um right now it's just we've got We've got some out to guides and professionals like yourself, um, and it will be available next fall. Okay. Yeah, or you can go to Europe and get one. Great. All right. Now, we've got a big day of touring tomorrow, and none of us are as fit as we used to be. 
So we're going to get an early start. So we're going to wrap this up. We've got two more questions. What haven't I asked you? You didn't ask me about the eye probe. Oh, yeah. The eye probe yes. is very cool. And, and the eye probe is something um, that's been around for a, a kind of overlooked. Completely overlooked. Completely overlooked by me, and I'm the ski category manager. <laughs> right? So it's like if the ski category director is, is missing this, then, you know, yeah, of course everybody Which else Which kind is. of ties back into what you said before. Like it could be a fantastic world-beating idea, but if the messaging isn't there, yeah. it doesn't resonate with people. And yeah. I don't get it. So the, the, the eye probe actually has a sensor in the tip of the probe, as you know, and when it gets close to the beacon, it sounds like the backup camera on your car. It goes yeah. beep, beep, and then beep. So the cool thing about this is, as you know, having taught lots of avalanche courses, two of the biggest struggles for people learning this is one, to do an accurate grid search. Yep. It's not that easy. It falls apart. Yeah. It falls apart. And, and, and second, when they're probing, how do I know when I've got a body? You know, is that is a it, rock or is it, is it a helmet? Is it or a, a log? Boot? Or, yeah. yeah. What the heck is it? Yeah. And so this takes the, both of those, eliminates the, the, the need for both of those because as you're doing, as you said, as you get inside five meters and you're slowing down and you've dialed in that, that line <coughs> and you're going straight ahead, somebody can be probing and, and hearing how yep. close they are and before you even finish, get to the lowest point on your beacon, they've already got a strike. Yeah. And, and there's no questioning, is this a, is this a body or I not? I can't imagine a worse feeling of digging down a meter and a half and moving one to two tons and being like, shit, we didn't have them. Right. That was a log. And that happened. Or that was mud. It felt squishy, but it's not a person. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. And you don't know what a body, I mean, I don't know what a body feels like with the probe. I've never <laughs> probed a body. Squishy. So, yeah. Bouncy. <laughs> Unless you get their boot Hopefully or helmet. Hopefully not. Or... I mean. <laughs> okay. All right. And then uh, wrap up question. Got any questions for me? Aspect Abbey. I mean, yeah. this, this, this is a, a really cool thing. I think, again, when you talk about safety and trying to, what, any way you slice it, ski touring can be risky, but you can, yeah. you can make it as risky as you want. You can go out in high hazard mm. and, and, and ski dangerous lines, or you can go out in high hazard and ski mellow lines, yeah. right? So how is, tell me about, Aspect Abbey and how that's going to help. Well, I was putting myself in your shoes and Angela's shoes because we all know guides, mountain professionals are the highest risk group. And we've lost so many friends and colleagues and we don't want to be in that group. And we also know that about the sketchiest thing you can do is guides out on their day off skiing together because the, the human factor traps are through the roof. Usually someone's a local, so familiarity trap. And you've got the expert halo of like, oh, we're all super dialed, super accomplished. And then there's this weird thing that happens where we always have to be in control and at work. And when we're not at work, we don't want to be. And it's like, hey, this is my day off. I am not going to herd these cats. And they're all fiercely independent. And there's going to be this weird social pushback if I'm the negative Ned and he's like, 
I don't know, guys. This feels a little aggressive. I, I'm going to get ridiculed by my peers. And it's a weird dynamic. And oftentimes, the sketchiest things that I've ever been involved with in the closest calls are on formerly on guides courses and exams and guides on their day out. And that's just how it is. And I was thinking about for you guys, we were just coming off a high danger. And before that, we were pegged at considerable for like 11 days. There's more persistent weak layers than I can count. And you guys have never skied here. Right. And you're like, what am I walking into? <laughs> we're going to go meadow skipping. <laughs> well, what was your experience like tonight when we, we, we got out the laptop and we went to app.aspectavi.com and you had the run list for Crested View well, on it, there? It, I mean, it, it takes a lot of that, that human factor out of the equation yeah. because we looked at it and, and Angela's like, I want to ski north facing. Yeah. So we go, okay. What are north facing options? Because it's been warm. And and, yep. and the cool thing with, with the app too is is you can choose a lot of um some of the apps, you know, Gaia and, and Caltopo have slope angle shading. So you can see, you know, it's 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 green or yellow to orange to red to purple. Like ten different colors. Right. Yeah. So and, and I'm <laughs> like going, a tie dye t shirt at a dead yeah, concert. And it's like I just wanna know Right now, if it's if it's considerable, I want to stay below thirty. Yeah. So I don't care what shade it is above thirty. Yeah. I just want to know everything that's under thirty. Yeah. And that's what I thought was really cool about the app is like everything everything that's above thirty is red. And what I felt was really cool was we're on equal footing because even though I'm the local and been here for I don't know twenty something years. Like we all have the same information and we can discuss it and it's a level playing field and there's, there gets rid of the hierarchy, which if you're going to have a well-functioning team in a high risk environment, there can be no hierarchy. Like everyone's opinion and data needs to be incorporated in the team decision. And it took us like three minutes to be like, that's where we're going. And yeah. Angela just zoomed in and was like, I want to ski North facing for the best snow quality. And like you said, like, I mean, you started the extreme skiing movement in America. One could arguably say you have at least some shared responsibility for that. And you're like, I don't want to ski over 30 degrees today. I want to be skiing blue run terrain yep. and come home safely. And we're like, yes, we all agree on that. And let's look for the ones that are in the clear. Yeah. And that was that. My goal with every tour is to ski the next day. <laughs> <laughs> my my motto used to be look good ski fast safety last <laughs> but then i then i got the beat down so many times i was like oh yeah um let's have a long and adventurous life yeah yeah cool well thanks so much appreciate yeah. you coming on thanks for having me looking All forward right. to the tour yeah tomorrow's gonna be great you're breaking trail you're the local i think we're bringing in the ringer we're bringing in alex <laughs> she's super fit <laughs> Thanks. Thank you so much for listening to All Aspects. If you like what we're doing here, please leave a rating and review. It really is the best way to help others find the show. Thanks again to our business daddy, Aspect Abbey, for making this show possible. To learn more about how Aspect Abbey is making avalanche safety simple, go to aspectabbey.com. 
If you want to use this powerful new tool on your next backcountry adventure, simply download the app from the App Store and enjoy 30 days free on them. Lastly, special thanks to Ice Lab for helping us produce this show. You guys rock and we couldn't do it without you. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you in the backcountry.